Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. I'm Associate Pastor Scott Farrell, and today we're going to continue our series in the story of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 7 today. The title of the sermon is called Busted. And the truth for today is that everything is revealed. And because of that, we need to take God very seriously. Well, be sure to like and subscribe, uh, comment down below, and God bless you. Well, speaking of the church and being together, we're thankful for every one of you who is here today with us in this room. And we're also thankful for every one of you who has chosen to participate and be a part of this service uh, online. And so we want to welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, you can see us on your screen, but we can't see you. And so I want to encourage you uh, to leave a comment in the comment section below or chat with the others who are are, uh, with you uh, today. If you're watching later on this week, uh, I hope you do that as well. Just let us know know you're there and we can pray for you that way. Uh, So we appreciate that. So wherever you are, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Esther chapter 7 today as we continue this this, uh, beautiful story of how God is sovereign over all things and how God is faithful to his people every step of the way. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story, something that I did when I was, oh, I think in fifth or sixth grade. I might have shared this with some of you. Uh, But when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I was always jealous of the kids who got to ride the school bus to school and and also back home. And the reason I didn't ride the school bus is because I only, I live probably less than a mile away from the school and my parents, uh, being good parents, said, no, you don't need to ride the bus, you can walk, it's good for you. And, you know, heard the old story about how they grew up walking to the to school 20 miles in the snow, uphill both ways and all of that sort of thing. But at any rate, uh, there I was and I was walking to school and by the time I reached sixth grade or so, I really wanted to ride the bus. I mean, some friends, you know, from across the way were, you know, in part of my neighborhood were, were riding the bus. And so I really wanted to do that. But I knew my parents would say no. I knew they would say no. And so I did what is logical to a sixth grader. I misled my principal into thinking that my mom had said, oh, yeah, it's okay. It's okay for you to do that. Uh, and this was in the days before you had to have everything in triplicate and have, you know, the president sign off on it and all that sort of thing. Uh, this was a day when the principal actually trusted me and took my word for it. I had been a trustworthy kid, and he had known me ever since I was in first grade. And so uh, there I found myself in the principal's office telling him something that I considered, well, I was misleading him, but that's just a fancy word for a lie, right? And so I lied to my principal. And lo and behold, in a few days after he signed off on it, I got to ride the bus home. Man, I was in heaven. This was awesome. I didn't have to walk home. It was fantastic. And I got to spend some time with some friends. And it was all wonderful until I got home. And my mom was absolutely petrified about where I was and about my safety. And the reason is, is because it took about three times longer to get home on the bus than it did for me to walk. And so she was extremely worried about me. You see, I was busted. 
I was busted, and I paid some consequences for that. My parents were very understanding, but, but I paid some consequences for that. The reason for that is because I tried to get what I wanted without their permission. I tried to get what I wanted without their permission. I tried to usurp their authority over me and also misled another authority over me in the principle. Now, this is a lot like, in a very tiny way, what's happening with Haman in Esther chapter 7. He's been trying to get what he wants too, and that is the annihilation of the Jews. He's been trying to work around the authority of the king, and he's almost been successful at it. But today, today he finally gets busted. He finally gets busted. Now, where we've been in in the story of Esther, this amazing story about God's faithfulness and sovereign control over all things, uh, this is a story about his faithfulness to the Jewish people in Persia. And we've been catching these wonderful, uh, well, more than glimpses, uh, wonderful views of, of his care for his people in almost every chapter. We've seen how God has been setting everything into place to save his people, the Jews. And so even though the deck seems very stacked in favor of of evil and, and the evil Haman whose plan to annihilate the Jews is just about to happen, beginning with with this this pesky guy named Mordecai, whom Haman hates, and we'll get into that in a minute. But all of Haman's plans are about to come tumbling down, just crashing to the ground. All of this is going to be reversed. And so again, we see God's implied hand of sovereignty even through chapter 7 of this story. We've gotten here by way of what is called a chiasm. Uh, this is a literary term. Uh, this is what Esther is. It's, it's a chiasm. And all this means is that the story builds to a high point right in the middle of the story, literally, if you put it all down on the paper, and then verse by verse, it reverses direction until we kind of get back to where we started, but it's the opposite place. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, technique uh, that, that uh, the writers of old used. And so, we have this, this chiasm, and it, it peaked in, in the last chapter we were in, in chapter 6, uh, when we saw Haman's plan to execute that awful Jew, Mordecai, in his own eyes. We saw that plan come tumbling down with a sudden turn of events that caused Haman to have to essentially bow before Mordecai as by the king's orders he led Mordecai around town in honor because Mordecai had saved the king's life by catching or or reporting some would-be assassins. And so we're just beyond that turning point now, and we're in the first step of things really beginning to roll in God's favor, in in the favor of the Jews. And as we as we see this turning, today we see that everything is revealed. And that's our, that's our truth for today. Everything is revealed. Absolutely everything. Nothing escapes the eyes of God. We see this in the last verse of chapter 6 all the way up to verse 6 of chapter 7 where Haman is busted. 
the last uh, verse of chapter 6, by the way, belongs with chapter 7. The guy uh, way back when who divided things up uh, missed a a verse there for chapter 7. But at any rate, uh, in this first part of the passage, we see Haman busted. And then in the latter part, in verses 7 through 10, we see the consequences and how those consequences reveal some very important things for us. And so to set the stage, Haman, as we begin chapter 7, has just just led Mordecai on that little parade through town, that humiliating uh, parade for Haman, but a wonderful, honoring one for, for Mordecai. And Haman has just heard an ominous warning from his wife and his wise men, a very wise and true warning as it turns out they say to Haman at the end of chapter 6 if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him that's about to come true and so let me read uh, the the first part about Haman being busted Uh, we don't have time to read the whole chapter Uh, but let me read that because that's key to our understanding of what God is teaching us here today. So let me read uh, the last verse of chapter 6 all the way up to verse 6 of chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to the feast, went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. And today, so today we see that everything is revealed, and we see it first as Haman is busted in the first six chapters, first six verses of chapter 7. Now, Haman, is, is, when he enters chapter 7, he's sitting on top of the world. He has become literally the right-hand man to the king of the Persian Empire, this vast empire that stretches all the way from India in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And along the way, he's learned how to be cunning with the king to get what he wants. He gains King Ahasuerus' trust just like I gained the principal's trust. But the stakes are much higher. 
He gained the king's trust enough to have the king hand over his signet ring, which was, which was the stamp of power, the key to, to any order that Haman wanted to make on behalf of the king. And the king just gave him a blanket permission to be able to order whatever he wants. He didn't want to know the details. He didn't want to be bothered with all that small stuff. He wanted to sit around and be king. Now he presents his case to the king to get rid of the Jews, uh, not by name, not as the Jews, but by simply mentioning this, oh, there's this small sect of people, they're, they're kind of a problem. You, you mind if I just go ahead and take care of it? It's kind of along those lines. And this is even though the Jews were some of the king's most loyal subjects. And so after this manipulation of the king to grant him the power to take care of actually a personal vendetta, and this is where things are revealed again. We've already seen this. You remember how the Amalekites had been defeated by the Jews generations ago. Well, these Amalekites were Haman's ancestors. And so Haman's risen to second in the land, and he sees his opportunity to get vengeance on the Jews. And so Haman's feeling good, man. He's, he's sitting on top of the world. He's got everything under control. He's got power. He's feeling really good about himself. In fact, in chapter 5, you'll remember how he bragged. Haman recounted uh, to his friends and his wife, his family, the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with, with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He's sitting pretty, and he is somebody. He is somebody. And so the only thing left for Haman to do to make his life absolutely perfect is to get rid of that stick in his craw, Mordecai, and all the rest of those pesky Jews whom he hates. And the king has given him the license to do it because he was so careless and foolish. He had given Haman the power to do it. And so Haman is really the one in charge. And so these are the things that are on Haman's, Haman's mind as he shows up in chapter 7 uh, for the second feast Esther had prepared for him in King Ahasuerus. Now what Esther is doing is carefully, carefully working out her own plan. This is to save the Jews, of course, by revealing Haman's plan. And you know what? She does so with a, a, an amazing subtle artistry. It's fun to watch this, how she does this. She has kept the king in suspense since the day before about what she wants from him. She had risked her life in the first place by going in unannounced to the king in, in chapter 5. But she'd done so with proper and necessary humility. If it pleased the king, and if, if, if the king looks upon me with favor, you see. So now she continues this tactic as she wines and dines the king and Haman, the second in command. He, she knows full well that the way to a man's heart is a table full of food and a lot of flattery. That's the best way to win a man's heart. And so the king Finally now, he's, he's anxious to know what Esther wants. He's really anxious to give her what she wants. And Esther's answer is absolutely masterful. 
The reason is because she's got to ask for what she wants without it seeming to bring charges against the king, even though the king is guilty because of his carelessness in approving Haman's plan without understanding the details or the motivation. And yet she's got to reveal Haman for the true criminal that he is. And so she addresses the king with the utmost of tact. If I have found favor in your sight and if it please the king. You know, when we approach our God, we never have to ask if we have found favor and if it please the king. And the reason for that is because of what God has already done for us. We don't have to wonder whether we can approach our king. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us to go boldly before the throne of grace. Go boldly because of what Christ has done. But Esther's dealing with a human king and a very fickle and and unreliable king who is subject to his whims. And so the reason that she is playing to his favor is that the king has already publicly repeated over and over that he'll grant whatever his queen wants. At least three times he has done this. This is the third time. This is an explicit, explicit expression of favor and pleasure with her on the king's part. And so Esther's really kind of setting him up. She's setting up Haman and she's setting up the king, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Because you see, to deny Esther favor in her request would be tantamount to the king lying publicly, not keeping his word. And so Esther finally lets the cat out of the bag. and She asks for the, that the king would spare her life and the lives of her people. She doesn't, again, say who exactly these people are she's talking about because it doesn't really matter. The reason is, is that the issue for the king is not that he had ordered the execution of the Jews. That sounds a little harsh. But you see, the issue that he's about to face is that somehow he'd have to figure out how to reconcile his promise to Esther to grant her request, even though by law he could not change his own decree that he had unwittingly made through Haman. You see, killing people wasn't the issue for the king. He could kill anybody he wanted any time he wanted to. He'd proven that already. The issue for him was how to save face. And Esther knew that. And that's why she is using her guile along with the Lord's help to accomplish the Lord's end. And so you see how God has been working all through this story. We're in the seventh chapter now. God has been working all through this story to put just the right people in just the right place at just the right time. We see God's hand all over this. God cares for his people. And so back to our passage, Esther is going to save that last detail about her Jewishness until later on in the next chapter. But what does get King Ahasuerus' attention here is that someone has ordered Esther's people to be killed. Esther says in verse 4, For we have been sold, 
I and my people, I and my people, we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. That means nobody left. This is an attack on the queen. And even more so, this is a a direct assault on the king himself. Because to assault the king, the queen, is to assault the king. And so that sheds light on his first question in this burst of anger in verse 5. Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Now in the Hebrew, we we don't really get this in English, but even in the written form, you can almost hear the sudden anger and it's expressed in, in biting abrupt syllables. It's very staccato. It's more like, who is he and who dared to do this? And Esther's answer is equally sharp. A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. You can see their their teeth being bared. This is an intense moment. Very intense moment. And all this bears out the sudden urgency that both the king and his queen are feeling, although almost for entirely different reasons. For King Ahasuerus, he's realizing that his reputation is in danger. But for Esther... She has an intense desire to get her point across to save her people. And not to mention, she's putting her life on the line again by accusing the king's right-hand man. If this goes wrong, she's gone. A foe and an enemy. Haman did it. Haman did it, she said. And so Haman is busted. Everything will be revealed, right? We know this as Christians. We know this very well. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees' hypocrisy when he told his disciples in Luke 12, chapter, uh, verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, God knows all of our secrets. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every deed that you've ever had. He knows it, those things just as well as he knew Haman's plot and prepared the way to destroy Haman and his plans. You see, God will always act on behalf of his people just as he does here through Esther and just as he has done through our Lord Jesus Christ for us. But the thing that we have to realize is that God is the perfect judge of sin. He always has been, he is now, and will be forever. As the saying goes, every sin has got to be paid for. The only question is who's going to pay for it, you or Christ? Our holy God, by right, demands a blood payment for our sin. In fact, that's the only way that we can be reconciled to him. And you know what that means? Is it means that God takes our sin very, very seriously. In fact, maybe even more so for us as believers. You see, we're, we're prone to be pointing fingers at other people. But what about those of us who plead the blood of Christ, who go on willingly sinning? 
Our Lord was very hard on the Pharisees because they claimed to be righteous and to know God, but they didn't know God. They weren't righteous. They didn't even know their own scriptures. They had twisted the, the scriptures into knots. And so we can find ourselves doing the same thing. We can find ourselves going, we're right and you're wrong. Shame on you. Shame on you. But in verse 6, Haman has the appropriate response to a king who has the right to kill him. He's terrified. He's terrified. This is the very one he tried to circumvent for his own devices. And he's also terrified before the queen whom he had unwittingly sentenced to death. This is a very serious crime on his part. And this place of terror is where a person who needs Jesus but doesn't know him ends up. It's inevitable. They end up terrified as they will one day, along with everybody else, realize that Jesus Christ is Lord after all. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's something here for us to contemplate as followers of Christ. Something that I'm not sure we as American Christians really grasp sometimes because our lives are easy and because of the flavor of Christianity that seems predominant in our land where God is here to make us happy. Our sins as believers matter a great deal to God too. When it says that he will remember them no more, that's only in terms of our salvation. God does not forget a single thing. He knows everything you have ever done and ever will do. But he will not bring those things to account because of the blood of Christ. In Haman's wayward guile, he is besmirching the name of the king. Of course, an imperfect king who has already behaved very poorly. But brothers and sisters, you and I, I tear down the name and reputation of our perfect and holy God every time we sin because we know the truth. We claim to know Christ. And so it behooves us to read the verses that come before Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we go back up to verse 26 in Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The author of Hebrews is quoting from the law there. And then in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Did you know that that was possible? To outrage the spirit of grace? That spirit with a capital S. 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Now that's being spoken of for a person who is apostate, who never really was a believer in the first place. But it gives us, it gives us a very clear idea of the horror of our sin as believers because we besmirch his name. We, we, we sully the most holy name, the name of above, above all names. And so what that ought to do is to cause us to take God so seriously that we understand the gravity of our sin, the incredible weight and burden of our sin. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. When we do, I submit to you that we're going to be able to understand God's grace all the more. When, when we understand how much we don't deserve anything and compare that to what God has given us through Christ, how can we but love him all the more? And how can we do nothing else than want to strive every day to obey him? Not to save us, but because we love him, because of what he's done. Knowing that yes, when we fail, his grace is there. His forgiveness and mercy are there. But I don't know about you. I don't like sullying the name above all names. Brothers and sisters, we truly cannot understand his grace if we don't understand that we deserve the unbridled, unmitigated wrath of God except for only the blood of Jesus Christ. That's grace, isn't it? Isn't that grace? Isn't that what you want to shout from the mountaintop any more than anything else in your life? But you see what the terrified Haman is about to experience in our passage is akin to what it's like to die without God's grace, without ever having known Christ. You see, he had been busted for his sin, just like we have all been busted. But he won't experience grace just as those who reject Christ will receive no mercy on that last day. That God has chosen to look upon us with favor at all is utterly astonishing because we deserve death just like Haman did. And so Haman is busted. Haman is busted. So let's move on now to the consequences in the remaining verses where we're going to see some more compelling things revealed. The first thing that becomes very evident is the difference between our true king and an earthly king. In verse 7, the king has had too much to drink at Esther's feast. This lights an extra fire and irrationality in his anger. 
But our God never gets drunk, does he? He never drinks too much. He never misbehaves. He never becomes irrationally angry. He is right and just in his anger against sin. And that's because our God is holy. But any earthly king is not. And so King Ahasuerus, he rushes off to the garden. He's got to get away for a second to consider all of this. He's got to stew for a little bit because he's got a big dilemma to sort out between keeping his, his promise to Esther and saving face over having been, been manipulated by the likes of Haman. Now, it's very clear that he's going to execute Haman. There's no doubt about that. Even Haman recognizes this in verse 7. What the king realizes is that he can't punish Haman for an order that was made by his own authority, by the king's authority. That would be like executing himself. And so ironically, the mighty Haman, who was second in the land and in a way really in charge, he's now pleading for his life from a Jew, from the mediator of the Jews, who is Esther. Isn't that a small picture of something else we're familiar with about how one day every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord? Every knee will bow. Even those who reject him are going to bow before our great God. And they will plead for mercy, just like Haman is pleading with Esther. But it's going to be too late. You see, everything is revealed. Our hearts are revealed. Who we really are is revealed. We can count on that. Haman's heart was revealed that he was all for himself in this whole story. That's the only one he cared about. And in his selfish heart, he has condemned himself. Likewise, our Lord declared in John 3.18... Whosoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The picture here is that those people have condemned themselves. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So as an angry, drunk King Ahasuerus returns from the garden, he finds Haman groveling for his life on the queen's couch and pow, light bulb moment. He realizes how he can fix all of this. He comes up with a trumped-up charge. He accuses Haman of assaulting the queen. And the king said in verse 8, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? All Haman was doing was pleading for his life. He wasn't harming Esther. He wasn't abusing her. He was begging, groveling. But you see, this is the perfect cover story for the king's own carelessness. So Haman, the king orders Haman to, to the gallows, the gallows that Haman himself had ordered for Mordecai's execution. There's another amazing irony. And Haman is not condemned because he wanted to kill the Jews. The king condemns him for the trumped-up charge of a personal indiscretion toward the queen. But our God never does that. He never dreams up charges against us because he is the God of truth. Everything that he declares, everything that he judges 
Everything that he sees is right and just and true. It's perfect. He is the God of truth. And the truth is that none of us can stand before his judgment. But here's God's promise to us. And this is similar to the passage that Wayne read to us a little while ago in Isaiah. This one's from Psalm 37, beginning in verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For if the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. You see, this is wonderful news for us if we truly believe in Jesus Christ. We won't be cut off from our promised land of eternity because God loves justice. His justice was perfectly satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on our behalf to appease the righteous anger of God the Father Almighty. And according to Isaiah, God crushed his son instead of crushing us. And so let me plead with you for another moment. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Contemplate this great truth all this coming week in everything that you do and say and think. Consider the magnitude of God's grace toward you and see if that doesn't change you. See if that doesn't make a difference in your life. Because you see, everything is revealed. Haman got busted. We've gotten busted for our sin too because nothing escapes the eyes of God. There were consequences for Haman because of what he had done. And as his wrongdoing became apparent, so did King Ahasuerus' bad character. And what that all reveals is that our God doesn't mis make mistakes or act selfishly. He is holy and his justice is perfect. And what that does is reveal God's character of true and perfect grace. We cannot understand his grace if we don't understand how fearful it is to fall into the hands of the living God if we don't understand the terrible, terrible weight of our sin. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We as believers can take that a step farther and we can see the, the beauty of that statement because what that means is that we can rejoice even though our darkest sins are known and, and revealed by a righteous God. We receive his grace through what his son did for us on the cross. God has looked upon you in everything that you have ever done, every thought that you have had, and he has said, you have found favor in my sight, not because of you, but because of him, because of Jesus Christ. You are saved and you will be with me in paradise forever and ever and ever. Amen. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. May that truth guide and direct us, not only this coming week, but every single day of our lives as we follow hard after our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. 
holy and gracious God, how can we even begin to thank you for your grace? How can we even begin to thank you for your faithfulness to us even when we do sin? How can we begin to, to thank you for the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? How can we begin to thank you? I think you've answered that question in this passage, Lord. We can begin to thank you by understanding how magnificent your grace is and how that means that we can live every moment of every day for your glory as we testify to the love and the mercy of a great God who is perfect not only in justice but in mercy. Thank you and amen and amen. Let's rise for a benediction. And we're going to turn to Hebrews again, this time from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all God's people say, amen and amen. So good to be with you this morning. So glad you've joined us online. Remember to leave comments, like and subscribe, and all of that stuff too. And uh, let's, let's have some fellowship now. God bless you.